Before the feature originally titled Grave Robbers from Outer Space was in production, writer-director Edward D. Wood Jr. and actor Carl Anthony were living together on Bronson Street, right in the heart of Hollywood. Edward, with help from his wife Kathy, had written a script that he thought could potentially catapult him into movie history. Along with a friend, he was spending every day and night trying to get money together to make this dream a reality. Ed had used his friend Bella Lugosi to attract investors to fund his prior projects, but was having a harder time finding the funds needed this time around. Lugosi was struggling with a near-crippling morphine addiction, and his heydays were clearly behind him, something that didn't go unnoticed by potential investors. Ed, on the other hand, was also dealing with his own demons and was drinking more heavily, which to Carl Anthony was obviously becoming a problem. But, so far, the focus was there. Little did either of them know that they were working towards what would indeed catapult them into movie history. Only, not as they intended. The movie opens with a monologue from the amazing Criswell a psychic known for his very inaccurate predictions of the future. His opening refers to the movie we are about to watch as Grave Robbers from Outer Space, and not the title we know it as, thus we understand that the weirdness has already begun. But what came before the opening monologue, what came before the release of one of the worst movies ever, is equally bizarre and as weird as it is fascinating. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, the eccentric, and the original, to a fault. I'm your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and today we are taking a deep look into the movie that made Edward D. Wood Jr. very famous for all the wrong reasons. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Nobody will ever notice that. Filmmaking is not about the tiny details. It's about the big picture. End quote. The endeavor which would become the movie Plan 9 from Outer Space began with J. Edward Reynolds, a highly respected man among Southern Baptist churches in Beverly Hills. Reynolds wanted to produce a religious feature titled the Billy Sunday story, but lacked the funds to make his vision a reality. Coincidentally, Reynolds was also the manager at the Mariposa Apartments where Ed Wood and his wife were renting at the time. Learning about Reynolds' predicament, Wood jumped at the opportunity and told Reynolds that if he pulled together what money he had, it would be enough to fund the next Ed Wood feature project. Wood told Reynolds that he had footage from the premiere of the film Sincerely Yours with Liberace, as well as footage of the fans outside. He told him he also had film clips of flying saucers, stock footage of jeeps and army stuff, as well as some old discarded scenes from Bela Lugosi films. Ed convinced Reynolds that he knew how he could write a script around this. According to Wood, his movie was nearly guaranteed to make a profit. Reynolds could then take the money from the Ed Wood project and make his religious feature. He made it sound easy as pie. 
Excited with the prospect, J. Edward Reynolds got his friend Reverend Lynn Lemon on board with $500, which he borrowed from his life insurance policy. Ed suddenly had the money he needed to get started, but the money for the film had come with a few conditions, one of which was the whole cast was to be baptized before the shoot. Now, most of the cast would be baptized, nonetheless, in a Jewish swimming pool in Beverly Hills. His wife, Kathy, was, however, one of the few who refused. Now, the six-foot-three-inch-tall, 400-pound Swedish wrestler Tor Johnson, who would play Inspector Clay in the film, pretended to be drowning during his baptismal procedure and took delight in the fact that it took several people to help him out of the pool. As a result of the investment, Wood wrote J. Edward Reynolds and Hugh Thomas, another investor, into the beginning of the feature as the gravediggers, as this was one of the conditions. Yet another condition was including Gregory Walcott as the star. Gregory Walcott was a member of the same church that Reynolds attended and also helped finance the film, but his decision to star in it would be one he'd later find unfortunate. Enter Myla Nurmi better known as horror movie presenter Vampira during the 1950s. She was incensed when she found out that Ed Wood wanted her for his picture. It was in a column of the Los Angeles Times that Ed Wood put up the ad informing Hollywood that he was making a new feature film and aspired to use Vampira. Around the same time, many studios were interested in making a major film with the rising star Vampira. There was even a bidding war for her. But when Ed Wood, who had earned a reputation as an amateur movie maker, displayed his interest, she was blacklisted. Nurmi was livid, but starving at the same time, living off $13 a week and struggling to find work. Thus, she was forced to accept the offer, though she would have some conditions of her own. Upon reading the script, and being horrified by the dialogue, she agreed to come aboard the Ed Wood project as long as she could do her role as a mute zombie character. Wood accepted the condition and agreed that she would earn the union minimum wage of $200 a day for her day of work. Not receiving a decent costume for the feature, she wore an old, worn-out, tight-fitting black dress. It looked like there was a hole in the crotch of the dress, because there actually was a hole in the crotch of the dress. But Myla didn't mind at the time, thinking, oh well, nobody's ever going to see this movie. It doesn't matter. On the day of her shoot, she rode the bus in full vampire makeup and costume to the studio on Santa Monica Boulevard. Because the role she had accepted was a non-speaking role, Ed Wood could direct her with greater ease. It was, however, difficult to walk in the form-fitting costume. On top of this, the flooring was not very steady where she had to walk between tombstones, and there was a generous amount of rocks and wrinkled fake greenery on the ground to maneuver. Nevertheless, Nurmi did her part that day and would go on to be recognized by thousands of fans as the iconic vampire wife of Bela Lugosi. Quote, Why, if I had half a chance, I could make an entire movie using this stock footage. The story opens on these mysterious explosions. Nobody knows what's causing them, but it's upsetting all the buffalo. 
so the military are called in to solve the mystery. End quote. Star of the feature Gregory Walcott, who plays Jeff Trent in the movie, had just finished working on a big feature film at Warner Brothers where he was under contract. At Warner Brothers, they had spent about 10 weeks working on their film. It was produced with high technology equipment and made professionally. Walcott soon found that this was a major juxtaposition to the methods of Ed Wood, who was spending a total of four days shooting. It was beyond Walcott's understanding how anyone could be able to make a movie that quick. He was nevertheless impressed with Wood's focus. In order to fulfill his promises, Ed Wood would work around the clock. At lunch, he'd look at the rushes, also known as dailies, which is the raw footage from the day. Rather than spend several hours or days looking over the footage, as most directors would, Ed would return two hours later to proceed filming. He had a mantra that he would repeat, one that kept him going during the long days of shooting, which was, I know my script, I know my script. On the day after filming his scenes, as if predicting the future, Gregory Walcott told his wife when he got home, Honey, this has got to be the worst film of all time. The first scenes were shot in a cemetery in Sacramento, incidentally barely a month before the death of Bella Lugosi. Tor Johnson's son, Carl Johnson, was a police lieutenant at the time, and every one of the police cars that were used in the feature were borrowed from him. Carl Johnson also told them about a graveyard that was set to be removed. He thought it would be a perfect fit for the film. Hence, they started out in Sacramento. So there they were in this old Mexican graveyard that dated back to before the turn of the century. It was set to be demolished so that a series of apartment buildings could be built in its place. The crew expected that the bodies had already been removed from the plots, but later they would find out that the bodies had not been removed. Now, adding to the bad juju surrounding this, all of the tombstones were turned over and some were even cracked. In addition to angering the potential spirits, the excavation on the edge of the graveyard had already begun, which created difficult shooting angles. This meant that the camera could never shoot to the left, nor could it go too far to the right, as there was a road there. All evident in the final release, as you can see that the shots are all front shots with hardly any angles. During the shoot, Carl Johnson and Carl Anthony would drag the heavy tombstones around. Lugosi couldn't really help, but he was still there laying a hand on the stones. Carl would eventually sprain his back with one tombstone that weighed as much as his father. In the end, by paying a few mourners $25, they managed to get all the footage they needed that day from the cemetery. The next day, however, the headlines in San Fernando newspaper read, Ghouls Invade Cemetery. The editor of the newspaper had no idea who had invaded the cemetery and moved the tombstones around. The article went on to say that relatives of long-deceased persons had been searching through the graveyard trying to find their relatives, as if the production needed any additional bad omens. Bella Lugosi was intended to play Vampira's husband, a much larger role in the initial script, but 
Unfortunately, his deteriorating health didn't allow for it. Succumbing to death before the film was complete, a friend of Kathy Wood, podiatrist Thomas R. Mason, whom had the same skull structure as Lugosi, doubled for many of his scenes. When the character is hiding his face, that's Mason standing in for Lugosi. After Lugosi died, besides the tragedy of having lost a good friend, Wood also had to find a solution about how he would kill off the character. If you've ever watched the film, which I highly recommend if you enjoy bad cinema, you know that Lugosi's character leaves his house and picks up the flower that his wife planted while a voiceover explains that he is going to the cemetery to visit his deceased wife's grave. What was supposed to follow was a shot where Lugosi was picked up and driven to the cemetery. During this scene, he was to explain that he believes in flying saucers and such, thus introducing the UFO aspect into the feature film. Instead, what happens is that Lugosi walks off screen. A scream appears along with screeching car tires and the character is proclaimed to be dead. It's, by all accounts, a very unsatisfying and amateurish conclusion to the character. Many who worked on the film did not sign contracts. Ed Wood would hire them and pay them in cash, sometimes in singles, as if someone had handed him a wad of singles and he simply passed them on. On several occasions, he even paid people on the morning of the shoot. Enter Lyle Talbot, who played the general in the film. Wood said, Lyle, I want to give you a check because I don't want it to bounce or anything. If nothing else, Wood was honest about his lack of funds. Nevertheless, Ed kept a smile on his face. Even when visitors came to the set to watch, he would talk to them while he was shooting. He'd even go so far as to fetch a chair for his visitors and invite them to sit. He was very gracious, always had a laugh, and always had a smile for everyone. And that was during his sober moments. When intoxicated, he was even more welcoming. His charming attitude, however, didn't change the fact that there was a lack of funds. Always looking to save money, Ed encouraged his actors to do their lines with as few cuts or retakes as possible. So every time someone managed to do a particularly long dialogue scene in one take, he would save a few bucks. Now the quality of said take was secondary. Things already flowing far from smooth, like clockwork, other obstacles soon arose. For instance, none of them knew what a spaceship actually looked like. In addition to this, they were missing a set for the airplane. There wasn't even a mock-up of the airplane. They simply didn't have the money for it. But first, there was still the need to figure out what to do about the spaceship conundrum. They shot a version of a square flying saucer in Carl Johnson's garden after a crew member went to the hobby store and bought three model kits of flying saucers which had flat, square bottoms. The plan was to add the special effects later. Building an entire cardboard town on a long table and with the help of piano wire, they would levitate these hobby shop flying saucers over this cardboard town. The flying saucers were made of balsa wood, so they put a little gasoline on them and then lit them to get some smoke coming from the backside. 
But every time they lit the back of the flying saucer, the piano wire would snap from the heat and down went the flying saucer. Consequently, every time that happened, they lost two or three little cardboard houses on the table, which meant that every time the flying saucer went down, it cost the production another $20 to replace the part of the set that had been damaged. Subsequently, special effects artist Ray Mercer suggested that if they could shoot the flying saucers on piano wire against black velvet and then superimpose them on footage of Hollywood, it would work better. It sounded like a great idea. So a crew member went down to the hobby shop to buy more flying saucer models. But seeing as it was trendy with the kids at the time, they were all sold out. In fact, they were all sold out all over Hollywood. So new ideas to complete the scene were in order. Again, Ray Mercer came to the rescue with the solution. He thought it would work just as well if they used old Cadillac hubcaps. Finally, that was what turned out to be the flying saucers in the actual film. They painted the hubcap silver and shot the scene, but the silver was much too bright on account of the lights, and since they didn't have any money to correct it in post-production, the hubcap flying saucers, for better or worse, appeared to practically glow on screen. And when it came to the design of the space people, the crew begged Wood to let them change the costumes. There were requests to make their faces different, or at the very least have them talk differently as the actors portraying them sounded like they were from a Southern California university. The makeup crew wanted to put colored wigs on them which would be green and make their faces green to match, a Frankenstein green to be specific. They also wanted to change the eyes. In fact, the eyes were already made, opaque with a plan to put the slits in the pupil the other way to make them appear more like cat's eyes. Additionally, each space character had chin fittings, which extended their faces and gave them a long, narrow look. It was all ready to go. All that had to be done was to tack on the extra fittings with surgical adhesive, no more than 15 or 20 minutes on each of the actors playing the aliens. The makeup crew thought that Wood would go with their suggestion, but no such luck would be had. He blamed it on time constraints and went with his alternative, which meant no makeup nor voice changes, which is what we end up seeing on screen. Quote, We're going to finish this picture just the way I want it, because you cannot compromise an artist's vision. End quote. The problems would continue. The title of the feature didn't sit right with the main investor, J. Edward Reynolds, which led Ed Wood and him to bicker over it. Wood's vision was to call it Grave Robbers from Outer Space. And regardless of the fact that Wood loved the title didn't help, in the end, it had to be changed, which is why we all know it by the name it is known by today, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Another disappointment for Reynolds was when he witnessed the effects. Reynolds had been under the impression that Wood was going to use professional-level special effects, but the reality was a very different matter. The shortcomings for Reynolds came yet again during the last scene to be filmed, the cockpit scene. The scene displayed the level of mastership that took place when it came to the effects. 
In order to make for what Wood considered to be a convincing cockpit set, the set director took a piece of masonite board, bent it, and hung a shower curtain behind it. Wood looked upon the set full of glee, while Reynolds' facial expression exhibited emotions completely from the opposite end of the spectrum. When the movie was finally completed in November of 1956, Ed Wood was very proud of his accomplishment, stating that Plan 9 was his pride and joy. He would go on to explain that if you wanted to get to know him at a deeper level, you should go see Glenn or Glenda, because that was him. That was his story, but Plan 9 was his pride. At the preview for Plan 9 from Outer Space on March 15, 1957, it was raining cats and dogs outside. Now, the car Ed was driving at the time was a Cadillac convertible, but it was far from pristine and he couldn't get the convertible top to rise. It was getting late and Kathy told Ed that he needed to get going, rain be damned. So Ed got in the car dressed to the nine, and there he was, driving along, trying to look nonchalant while the rain poured down, filling the convertible as if it were a bathtub. People would turn their heads to look at him, but Ed didn't care. He was on cloud nine. Or maybe he was on plan nine. <laughs> okay, bad joke. At the premiere, the amazing Chriswell introduced the film, stating what a great film it was, and then one by one the people who were involved with the film rose up to speak. Tom Mason, the chiropractor, arose to thank the late, great Bela Lugosi for giving him this chance to have his debut in this film. Even the cameraman, Bill Thompson, spoke about how he enjoyed doing the movie. Dudley Manlove, the head alien, and Paul Marco also gave a few words. When it was Ed's turn to enter the stage, he said, I'd like to dedicate this film to my great friend, Bela Lugosi. The excitement of the night was at its peak. Everyone was hyped about it, and then the feature began rolling. There were a few laughs here and there, more than few by some accounts. The acting provoked laughter, so did the special effects, but most of all, the near-impossible-to-follow story encouraged an uproar of laughter. None enjoyed it more than Tor Johnson, who laughed at his own performance with gusto. Unfortunately, Few others saw the film as the genius picture Ed Wood did. At the preview night, actor Gregory Walcott remembers sitting next to Reynolds and feeling very sorry for him. Later, Reynolds would attempt to sell the movie to distributors, but none would have it. No one would even touch it. After the preview at the Mariposa apartment, Reynolds and Wood got into a big fight. This escalated into Wood and his friend Paul Marco also having a big fight, which cultivated with Wood knocking Paul down the stairs. It is safe to speculate that alcohol had a hand in pushing things further towards the dramatic. And one would think things couldn't get any worse. Well, it did. Kathy Wood fell asleep on the sofa with a lit cigarette in her hand and burned down the couch. One thing led to another, which eventually led to Reynolds ousting the Wood couple, whom we mentioned earlier were renting from Reynolds, completely from his building. After finding new accommodations, Reynolds came over to the new apartment where Ed and Kathy Wood were staying. 
Kathy had been telling Ed that he shouldn't trust Reynolds as she suspected that he was a charlatan, a religious figure that was in fact just out to use wood. But Ed wouldn't listen. On the day Reynolds came to visit, Kathy was just entering the apartment when she heard Reynolds say, Here's a dollar. She immediately went over to them and snatched the dollar out of Ed's hand, saying, What the hell's going on? But Eddie snatched it back from her, telling her not to worry. Later, she would learn that Reynolds had taken ownership of Plan 9 from outer space for the shocking sum of one dollar. Things wouldn't end well for Reynolds, however. In the end, Hal Roach, who owned a company in New York, decided to release the film for Reynolds, but by all accounts, he didn't receive any sum of money to speak of from the deal. Ultimately, it was a heartbreak for J. Edward Reynolds, who would unfortunately die a few years later before getting the chance to witness the rise in popularity of his investment. Plan 9 from Outer Space opened on 41st Street in New York in a tiny little theater where it would go on to play for a year and a half. Tiny theater or not, the film filled the place. According to Chriswell, it made a ton of money. Not for Ed Wood, who sold off the rights to it, but to certain investors, Chriswell being one. It was a well-placed investment. The film would never play in Hollywood. The closest it came was San Diego. In the end, it didn't reach many theaters at all before it hit television. Nevertheless, once it did hit the small screen, it was on all the time, which helped to make it a cult classic. Edward D. Wood Jr. is remembered as one of the worst directors of all time. Though he would reach cult status, he would unfortunately die of a heart attack on December 7, 1978 at a friend's house after alcoholism had taken over his life. Unfortunately, before he got to shine as a beloved author of bad cinema, he was 54 years old. It is unfortunate that he never got to witness the fascination and adulation he would receive for making what are still considered to be some of the weirdest, odd, and worst movies ever. We can take comfort in the fact, however, that many of his films are still around for our enjoyment, which in the end, is what he most likely would have wanted. Here is one final quote from a true American original. One is always considered mad when one perfects something that others cannot grasp. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemore Hardin. I, along with my co-creator at House of Words, would like to inform you, our current listeners, that we are in the process of uploading our past and future episodes to our newly formed YouTube channel, House of Words Podcast, in hopes of reaching a wider audience. So we encourage you to please help us spread the word and consider supporting us via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords if you feel that the content we deliver provides you with some value. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. 
Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden.